Welcome to the Watts of Change podcast. I'm your host, Jen Watts, and we are live from Indianapolis. I am here today because I am part of the church and I think the church has to stand up. We've become too laxed on issues of great importance and I do think that we have been too silent, the the more progressive church. We've just been silent and disorganized and enough. We have got to start taking care of women. We have got to start taking care of one another. And, uh, and this is where it starts, is having a willingness to stand up and say enough is enough. I'm here today because, um, so I work on a farm in Sheldon, Illinois called Zumo Acres and our neighbor Deanna um, told us about this protest because the uh, legislator in Indiana was convening today to restrict abortion access and as a group of young people concerned about social justice and uh, people's rights, we decided it would be important to take a break from the farm work we're doing and just raise our voices. I'm here because government is overreaching and getting into way too many decisions and choices and it's a woman's right to choose her, for her body. I support my daughter's choice, my daughter's right to choose, so I'm here to support her. I'm here fighting once again for women's rights. I can't believe we're here fighting this fight again. They need to keep religion out of legislation. Um, I guess the better question is why wouldn't I be here today, you know? Um, This is incredibly important, not just for me, but for all women, people who have uteruses, people who love people who have them. Um, It's not just about um, ourselves, but it's just about, it's about healthcare. It's about having equal rights for everybody and not currently being able to do what we need to do to be healthy and yeah. Ooh, I am here for the fact that I am a woman dealing with infertility who wants a child who, if my child is born and there are complications and I need to abort it, I want that fucking choice to be mine. I want my friends and the people that I love that have a uterus to have actual health care that is for them. I want health care for my, good health care for my LGBTQIA people. I am here to just show my support because this isn't about just a kid and a life. It's about our lives. It's about giving good health care to everyone, especially those of us who are women or consider themselves a woman. Um, And I'm here to help smash the patriarchy. I am here as a woman, as someone with a uterus who will be directly impacted by this bill. I am here representing all of the other Hoosier citizens who have uteruses who are going to be impacted by this bill and their families, all of the state institutions that are going to be burdened by the decision if this is passed. And not only that, but this is a pivotal moment for our country as a whole. 
and we are poised to help set the trajectory of where we go from here for generations to come. And if there's, if there's not, what else is fighting for except the right to my own body, to my life, to my liberty? My name is Jocelyn Vare, and I am running for Indiana State Senate for District 31, which is Fishers and Hamilton County and part of Marion County. And um, I am here to represent fellow Hoosier women who desperately want their voices to be heard today. Women across our state do not want legislators making decisions for our health choices. I'm here because um, I think that the choice should not be run by a man or someone with a uterus. So, hi, what is your name? Miles Nelson. And Miles, what, are you, what office are you running for here in Indiana? Well, I currently sit on Carmel City Council and I represent the West District. First Democrat ever elected in Carmel. That is wonderful. And I, I follow Carmel politics very closely, so congratulations. And why are you here today? Well, I'm here to support everyone. I'm here to support women and I'm here to support my friends and colleagues and frankly, my daughter, my sister, my mom and my cousins. Well, thank you so much for what you're doing and we wish you the best of luck with all your work in Karma. We'll be following you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Uh, I stand strong against abortion and I would like to see uh, the uh, state of Indiana uh, become an abortion-free state. And can you explain why it is the government's role to step in in a situation like this? Um, I believe that in this particular situation it's murder and murder needs to be taken care of and uh, we cannot abort uh, and uh, in our state and think it's okay. It is, abor uh, it is murder and we need to get rid of that. Uh, that is wrong. We shouldn't be aborting um, uh, children, viable children, and uh, that is, that's murder. So it's got to stop. I teach my kids about all the amendments and Freedom of religion is a very big one. They, we study it all year, and this is not freedom of religion. This is putting, putting some groups' religious rights above others. My fifth grade students understand freedom of religion. Why can't our lawmakers get it? I am here to uh, stand up for the right to abortion, which benefits men and benefits women and benefits children. I'm here today to make sure that people know, outside of just murdering a baby, that there are options. And as a man who's adopted five, done foster care, there are options out there for people. They don't just have to abort a baby. And I know they've given me all the reasons why they should and shouldn't because of the health of the mom or whatever else. I truly believe that my Lord Jesus, even if they're at a health risk, the woman, that if they put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, he will heal them as well as the baby before this would all happen. So I'm just simply here to try and share a different point of view. If they'll listen, some listen, some won't, but peacefully just share another perspective. They don't have to murder this child. There are some of us out there that would take that baby. What you just heard was a montage of interviews that were done at the Indiana State House on Monday, July 25th, 2022. Um, there was a, another rally at the State House um, because the Indiana State Legislator is holding a special session around an abortion bill 
introduced to almost put a complete ban on abortions in the state. You heard the anger. You heard the support. You heard um, different perspectives from individuals that were at that rally um, and why they came that day, why they felt compelled to show up and make sure their voices was heard. They shared their side of the story on both the pro-choice side. And we got a few pro-life individuals who were there um, all rallying together. Um, The sort of anger was almost palpable when the two uh, clashed in different areas around the statehouse. Um, As soon as you walked up to the rally, you just felt the energy um, just skyrocketing around sort of like, please. um, And what I thought was in many ways desperation at one last attempt to get state legislators to listen and hear um, these voices outside of the state house, which then went into the state house, um, and, ch- and the chanting, the echoes you heard within the state house of individuals wanting their voices to be heard, um, and wanting their voices to be heard that a vote against abortions in Indiana would be detrimental to all. Um, and that was really the overpowering message I certainly received walking away from the state house rally. But I also felt a sense of hope, and I felt inspired to see people of all ages, all races, together in one place, chanting for change and chanting for their voices to be heard and listened to. And many people were there. You know, we talked to some some senior citizens, women who were in the 70s fighting for this right, and now they were back at the state house fighting for the rights of their granddaughters. So there was also a generational tone that you could feel as soon as you walked up to the state house. And honestly, I was I was blown away um, by Monday's rally. Uh, today, um, I am also going to be uh, sharing some voices with you on this episode of women who wanted to come forward and share their stories, their personal stories on having an abortion. And I've always stated from the beginning of this podcast that I wanted to create a safe space for individuals to tell their stories around hard topics that everyday women and everyday families are going through. In some of these interviews, um, specifically the next two coming up, you're going to hear personal stories of two women um, who had an abortion. Um, One had two abortions. Um, And the circumstances surrounding those decisions helped them live what I, I would consider, and many would consider, healthy, thriving lives today. And so... I don't want to do any more talking. I want to turn it over um, to our first interview. Um, it was a wonderful woman named Abby. She is originally from Indiana. She now lives in California um, where she uh, sought out her higher education. Um, and I want you to listen to her story with an open heart um, and get a better understanding of why, why she decided that an abortion was the best decision for her health, her mental health, and in, in their second case, her physical health. Okay, so our next guest is Abby. Abby, welcome to Watts of Change podcast. Thank you for joining us this afternoon. 
Thanks so much for having me. And thank you for the work that you're doing. Um, you know, it's especially meaningful to me because obviously without access to reproductive health care, I would not be the woman that I am today. Mm. So thank well, you. Of course. Thank you. And I also appreciate um, you being willing and open to share your story um, on your journey on reproductive rights um, and how your choices have helped you become the woman and the thriving woman you are today. Um, you know, I met Abby through Dominique, who was on our last episode, um, and have got to know Abby a little bit recently and just very impressed with your commitment um, to communications, to writing, to making sure that stories that are relevant, change, are out there and fostered. Um, so certainly appreciate the work you do. Um, and, you know, I, I want to just set the stage by letting folks know that, you know, Abby, um, given everything that has happened with Roe versus Wade, um, she is from Indiana. Uh, I'll let her tell her story, but she's, she's very passionate about reproductive rights and what is going on in our country right now. Um, and Abby is willing to share her story with us today about her experiences having an abortion and why that choice um, was so critical for her growth. And it's so important um, to have that choice to be, to uh, lead to the woman she is today. So first, Abby, I just want to say thank you so much for being willing to share your story. I think it means so much to women out there who have gone through abortion themselves. Again, one and out of four women at this point have, have had an abortion in the United States. Um, and there's so many women right now grappling uh, with this decision. Um, so thank you for sharing your story and being sort of a, a beacon of light and hope for them. Um, and I just want to kind of open the space for you and as a safe space for you to share your experiences. Um, and hopefully that will help others as they're making tough decisions in their lives. But also we hope that legislators are hearing right now the importance of the ability to make the choice um, to, uh, to, to have a procedure or not. So thank you so much for that. Thanks, Jen. And um, I'm just going to say, you know, as a writer and as a communications professional, my heart is beating so fast right now. Like, I know that I have the tools to be able to tell my story, but um, at the same time, it's scary, you know? Um, and my story is is wrapped in trauma. And I think, you know, how trauma, you know, has this uh, force and ability to kind of wrap its, its uh, hands around your throat in a way and silence you. Um, mm -hmm. And I've felt that in a very real way. Um, so I, I'll just start by saying, um, you know, just be patient with me as I talk through this. Um, it is, it's scary to be able to, to talk about this. Um, I've had two abortions. The first was during a really dark time in my life. I was 15 years old, a sophomore in high school, and I was living in the shadow of a, of a life-altering sexual assault um, that occurred earlier in the year. I had sex with a friend of mine, someone that I trusted and enjoyed being around, but we weren't dating or anything. I think, you know, in a way, the act was more of an attempt to regain control over my body after such a traumatic experience. Um, 
which I've actually learned is common for sexual assault survivors. Um, we had sex one time, the condom broke. I had no idea. I was completely clueless. And I got pregnant. Um, I'll actually, I, I, I'll never forget the time, you know, I was a sophomore. I, it was May. He, he was like off, you know, going to graduation parties and stuff. He went out, got me a pregnancy test. We met in the driveway, did the handoff. Um, I went into the bathroom alone to take the test. It was very surreal. And I can, I can remember very vividly the scenes that surrounded that experience, but it almost felt like I was like watching myself from a different planet. You know, like I was, I was not in my own body. I was living kind of like on autopilot at the time. And I think anyone who's been through trauma can kind of relate to that. Um, mm, looking back, you know, what I know now is that my child brain like could not process the trauma of being sexually assaulted um, earlier in the year. And I was really struggling with PTSD and I just felt, I felt empty. I felt like my body was no longer mine. And um, it was really, it was a really tough time. But luckily, like I said, the person who got me pregnant was a friend of mine. He was, um, he became a, a really close confidant um, throughout my life. And I'm super grateful because I had a really solid support system around me. Um, my family is incredible. My best friend was there. Her mom was there. You know, all these people surrounded me and really through their words and, and through their actions, they told me that my life and my future mattered and um, my physical and my emotional health as a 15-year-old child was worth protecting over, you know, the, the potential, potential development of an embryo inside my body. So with that support, um, you know, I was able to schedule an appointment at Planned Parenthood in Indianapolis. I was living in Fort Wayne at the time. Um, my mom drove me and my friend, um, and I was able to get the abortion pill, which ended my pregnancy at six weeks. Um, so took the pill, went home. My friend stayed with me all night. You know, I, I had cramps. It was sad. It was hard. Um, but I do not regret it for a second. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm just being honest. I do not regret it. And listen, I don't blame my decisions and my pregnancy. I want to I want to be really clear. I don't blame that on my experience with sexual assaults. I'm not trying to, you know, victimize myself. But the two are very intertwined. I think that, um, you know, what I'm seeing a lot is an attempt to normalize abortion. Activists are steering away from the rape and incest conversation, which... I totally understand. Like I, I, I get that. I respect every person's right to choose and I don't need any sort of moral receipt in order to know that people are making decisions, you know, you know, about their own healthcare in the right way. Like I trust that people can make their own decisions. However, instead of pushing away from that conversation of rape and incest, I'm actually really drawn towards it because I think it's really important to talk about forced pregnancy in a society that is poisoned by sexual assault. 
Mm-hmm. You know, um, young people are at the highest risk risk of sexual violence, and females especially. I think it's like one in six American women that Rain reports as being um, victim of of attempted or committed rape, and that statistic, you know, that statistic doesn't capture the reality because the majority of people don't even feel emotionally or physically safe enough to report the crime. You know, like Mm. I, I think it's safe to say that the majority of cases go unreported. I was sexually assaulted at 15 years old and I did not report it until I was 30, um, a couple of years ago. Mm. I'm a privileged white, educated, financially stable woman with a healthy, non-abusive relationships around me. I have a really strong support system. It took me 15 years to get to where I needed to be in order to report the crime. Mm. Mm. And when I did, I was treated like absolute garbage. And like the statute of limitations had expired anyway, so it felt completely pointless. And that experience, like getting a really up close look at how our systems fail us was a major awakening for me. It was, um, it was absolutely devastating and, and completely re-traumatizing. Um, and that's, what's really fueled me to like start talking about my story and telling my story. Um, because of it, it's helped me to see, it's helping me to see others, you know? Um, I mean, what is it? What does it say about our society that a guy in Indiana can literally walk into a police department, confess to raping someone, and then turn and walk free? Exactly. Absolutely. And, and then that- a girl impregnated by like her father, let's say, has to be investigated upon, you know, miscarriage. Like yeah. misogyny is alive and well, and boys and men are not being held responsible for their actions. And girls are trained from a very young age that their bodies do not belong to them. Absolutely. Mm. In addition, you know, we're trained to smile politely, sit down, shut up. It's a recipe for unhealthy sexual encounters unhealthy relationships, unhealthy people. So I, so I get it. Like when people say things like, I don't believe in abortion unless in the case of rape or incest, when states make laws that reflect that belief, they are blatantly ignoring the greater context at play. My pregnancy at 15 did not result from rape. The majority of pregnancies do not result from rape or incest excusing abortion for rape or incest does not absolve the violence that we endure, the misogyny that inflicts our society, deteriorates our physical and our mental health, you know, like forcing people into unwanted pregnancy literally breeds misogyny. It's, it's trapping people. It's stunting them. Um, I, I really do feel like my abortion saved my life. It really did. I've been haunted with, with post-traumatic stress for 15 years. And I just recently started healing um, the healing process. And actually, when the pandemic started, 
the pandemic has like played a huge role in this. Um, in 2020, I was beginning the second semester of an English graduate program at Loyola Marymount University here in Los Angeles. And I've been, I've been super fortunate um, during the pandemic. My husband is in a field that worked all through the pandemic. He builds houses and um, we don't have any kids. So I've spent the majority of the past few years working from home un- uninterrupted, which honestly has been like a dream for a writer. Right. But um, in that isolation, I really did lose all my coping mechanisms. Um, I think I've seen a lot of a lot of that happening around me as well with uh, with friends and, and, and family members and the community at large. Like we've been forced to kind of let go of our coping me- mechanisms that were holding us upwards. And I was really forced to confront my past trauma Um, and my, my scholarship really helped and played a huge role in that, in that process and and healing LMU for anyone who doesn't know is a Catholic school. Um, Mm. I'm sure, you know, I know for a fact that that community has a lot of conflicting opinions about the topic of abortion, but luckily like as Jesuits, um, you know, there's no indoctrination in the classroom. The Jesuit education really embraces inquiry and, and discourse. It's driven by social justice. Um, so while I was there, I really found an intercultural and um, even inter, interreligious community that held me as a scholar and as like a whole individual person. Plus, you know, when you pursue English studies, you're really kind of pursuing a degree in wor- world building. Um, I know people like look at English studies and they think like, oh, you're like sitting around in circles <clears throat> reciting poems, like, oh, good for you. But it is, it's really like p- pursuing a degree in world building. It's really fostering empathy for others. It's imagining new possibilities. You're, you know, I spent two years reading theory and, and th- literature and participating in open discourse and writing and I was able to examine how the world works and think about how I fit into it. And that's a huge privilege that I never would have been able to have if I didn't have um, an abortion. And, excuse me. um, And through that, you know, I went in thinking that I was going to be a fiction writer. I ended up taking a class on the personal essay, which is where I really hit my stride and and I loved. And I kept finding myself returning to write about my experiences with sexual assault, with teenage pregnancy, with abortion. Um, and because I'm at a, a place in my life right now where I, I do want to start a family, um, I also started, you know, exploring motherhood through that and, um, you know, preparing myself and thinking about how to be a mother and the best um, way to raise a child and how to, you know, not, um, not let the trauma like seep into the next generation. Um, that's been a huge part of what I've been working on over the past couple of years. And can you imagine if everyone were able to do that? Like, I mean, I feel, I'm not saying that I'm like, that I'm, you know, going to be any better of a person than anyone else. I'm saying that I'm going to be a better mother than me, than, than the 15 year old version of me. Like, there's no way that I could have, um, you know, gone through that kind of transition at, at 15. So I actually, you know, I, I ended up writing my very 
first book in, in, in the pan, during the pandemic, a memoir that dives into a lot of these topics. And um, through the practice of like com- combining research and, and self-reflection and all, everything that's required for personal storytelling, it really helped me to get a place, get to the place of embracing my desire for motherhood and, um, and channeling that. So um, I've been trying to get pregnant for the past, a little over a year now. Um, in October of 2021, I actually did get pregnant for the second time. My husband and I were really happy. Um, I'm, you know, I'm the dreamer of the, of the group. So, you know, I was building lists of names in my head and imagining the nursery and all that good stuff. Um, but I will say like, despite the joy the pregnancy, it was really hard. It triggered my PTSD. Um, you know, in pregnancy, you don't have control over your body. You can't participate in certain activities. You can't eat certain foods. You can't take medications you're used to taking. Um, you know, that's, that's just the start. And then the physical symptoms like nausea and fatigue and all that stuff. And, you know, as a survivor of sexual assault, these are significant intrusions. So, you know, for some, you like you look on Instagram and it's like these beautiful photos of these women with these, you know, wonderful bellies. And, and for some, it's like the miracle of life. But for me, like the whole experience felt like, it felt like a, uh, embodied misogyny, honestly. That's what it felt like to me. I It was really hard. But even so, I was working through it. It was my choice to do so because I, I want to be a mother now. Um, but unfortunately, after a couple of months, we discovered that the pregnancy was inviable. So my doctor essentially sent me home to wait for the pregnancy to pass um, over over Thanksgiving and it didn't pass. Um, I was having what's called a missed miscarriage, which is essentially when your body doesn't expel the pregnancy on its own. And my doctor really was like stressing the, the physical harm that could ensue without attention to that. She, and this is, you know, th- again, this is a doctor in California. Um, she scheduled me for a DNC. It was like, no, no questions asked, you know, um, it's a 10 minute outpatient, outpatient procedure. Um, where basically a, di- a doctor dilates your cervix to remove the tissue from inside your uterus. So I was awake the whole time. My husband stand standing right by me, held my hand. Um, there's actually a moment where the nurse practitioner was saying like, hey, are you okay? And I thought she was talking to me, but she was talking to my husband. <laughs> I like, oh, out. Oh. Yeah. Had to sit down for some water. Um, so I do think it, it's... It, you know, it's, it's stressful for sure. It's stressful. It's sad. It's, it's devastating. Um, it's not anything that anyone wants. No one wants to go and get an abortion. Um, but it's safe. It's common. It's easy. Um, you go home with cramps and, and that's that. Um, I, and even when people, I don't know how much you've talked about this in other podcasts or if you're planning on talking about that particular procedure procedure um but even when people are able to miscarry on their own when their body expels an inviable pregnancy without assistance dncs are actually still recommended um because 
infection or heavy bleeding can occur. And, you know, if those tissues aren't completely removed, that can be life threatening. So whenever I hear people say things like, oh, natural is better. Women, women have been having miscarriages since the beginning of time. Their bodies know what to do. It, it does, it's, it makes me cringe a little bit and everyone, you know, you can, you can make your own decisions. Right. But like women have been dying since the beginning of time, you know? Right. So it's like for as awful as humankind can be, like we have to look at ourselves and think to ourselves, like we're actually pretty awesome too. Like we've created an entire industry devoted to saving people's lives. Right. It's inhumane to force people to suffer without care when we have these incredibly simple solutions that we've created with our God-given brains, you know? DNCs are also used to detect things like cancer, and they're used in cases of infertility, ironically. So laws that criminalize these procedures, um, they're not just affecting people who are seeking abortion. They're affecting all sorts of women. It's a war on all women, not just women seeking abortion because the doctors are being criminalized, right? So they have no incentive to continue doing any sort of procedure that could be investigated as abortion. Wow. Yes. Yes. It's huge. So it's like women who are, are not even pregnant are going to die as a result of these laws. And I think that people are having a hard time wrapping their head around that. They don't think that's true, but that that's true. And that's why, that's why, you know, that's why we're fighting, right? Like, so, um, the opinion draft, like I said, you know, the opinion draft came out right in May. Um, like I said, this, this more recent experience with abortion kind of opened my eyes up to um, how how it affects you in, in in different ways, and and my experience recently with you know coming forward and and stating my case and not seeing seeing how the system fails you um, really helped to fuel me to to use that, those stories in service of other people. So my, my birthday was in May. My birthday is May 8th, which actually happened to be Mother's Day. Wow. Um, and that's like right around, do you remember when the opinion draft of the Supreme Court was leaked? It was like early May, right? Yes. It was like that week. Yes. Or was it late? I don't know. Anyways. Yeah, I don't remember the date, but I, it, it was definitely around that time. Yeah. So I had been in therapy after my miscarriage for about five months by then. Um, and so I was really starting to feel myself like slowly come back into my body. And so, you know, when these things happen, even if we know that they're happening, we start to freeze with overwhelm. We like we, our bodies like react in like their, you know, animalistic ways, like, right. So like stress, like if you don't, if you can't run from it and you can't hide from it, you freeze. So like a lot of the times when I've seen these things over the years happening, I freeze with overwhelm, but because I have been working through it with therapy, um, I was able to like actually react for the first time, um, this past May and I band together with a couple of close girlfriends to just brainstorm how we could support the women who will suffer the most without access to healthcare. Um, knowing that that was coming down the, the line. And, 
And Domini, um, of course, shout out to Domini, during this time, she said something to me that I I have returned to probably once a week um, since. Like, it, it's she doesn't know this, but um, she said, don't be afraid to share your story. How else are your people going to find you? Yes, I love that. I love that. Don't be afraid to share your story. How else are your people going to find you? So with the support of a couple of close girlfriends, my, my husband, my family, I rallied 120 to 125 small donors, regular people, um, and raised a little over $8,000 in one week for National Network of Abortion Funds, which is a grassroots organization that re- works to remove barriers to abortion. And Amazing. I don't think that I would have been able to been able to do that. I don't think I would have gotten that support without making it personal. I think that vulnerability is a really powerful force. Like I'm, I'm, and it's hard. I'm, I'm like right now. I am. I my throat hurts because of of talking about this, like physically. Um, but vulnerability is a powerful force. It unleashes stigma. It provides a space for others to rest. And I I hope that by letting go of some of my story, we're able to collectively, you know, raise those funds needed so that other women can create a story of their own. And that is like a really beautiful thing for all sides. It's beautiful for me. It's beautiful for them. It's beautiful for everyone who was able to, you know, send $5 or $20 or whatever it was. Um, Our daughters and our sons are going to know our stories. Yes. and I hope it goes without saying, but like I, I do, I do respect everyone's right to privacy. I recognize that silence is a survival mechanism. It's mm. not everyone has the ability to show up publicly. Absolutely, you know? but, absolutely. But individual stories really do have the power to drive change, both in, externally and internally. The experience for me, it felt like sort of a coming out. It felt like a shift towards. Um, necessary healing in a way. I don't want to like yeah. take that coming out, you know, uh, language from the queer community, but I imagine that, that, that that's, that's what it feels like in a way. Um, it, it, it felt like I walked outside for the first time with the top layers of my skin feel peeled off, like literally, like that's the, that's the metaphor that I keep coming back to. It, it hurt, like physically it hurt. There are physical symptoms of grief, like the headaches, the stomach aches, the numbness, the fatigue, like panic attacks. Because like I said, my experience with sexual assault and my experience with abortion are very intertwined. And people, I don't think that people are able to name that, name or identify that tension. But I think that, I think that people are feeling that tension. And that's why you're feeling that way. Because even if you haven't experienced sexual assault, You've experienced the misogyny that breeds sexual predators. Mm. You know, you've experienced being objectified, being ignored, being called crazy or a bitch, or you're you're overdramatic or you're overreacting. And these are all insults to pacify this sort of rage, right? Like, yes, you've witnessed the pathologizing of survival strategies. We literally live in a country that elected a racist Mm. 
an accused rapist to oversee the highest executive branch of government, literally responsible for implementing and enforcing laws. That is triggering. He's not even the president anymore. It's triggering every single day, over and over and over. It feels like a personal assault because it is. Because your peers and your family members and your friends decided that your humanity was not the most important thing on the ballot. And that's how they voted. That's personal. Yes. That's so personal. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And when you take away someone's bodily autonomy, you dehumanize them. You remove their status as a citizen, right? Like our country was founded on the idea that the states cannot take power from its citizens. We deserve autonomy. We deserve independence. It's right there in the Declaration of Independence. Of course, Black activists have have been pointing out the hypocrisy of that for, you know, forever, right? Like our country promises democracy and yet the right to participate in democracy is obscured for the majority of people. Oppression is oppression. And that's, it's, it's all related. You know, like when you create laws that target specific people in specific neighborhoods and then imprison them based on their, you know, socioeconomic status and remove their ability to vote, you are removing their autonomy. You are dehumanizing them. Yes. It's the same thing when you create laws that protect sexual predators. Mm. When you elect sexual predators to uphold the laws, when you ignore public majority, force women and, and girls and people with uteri to, to become incubators, you know, create create barriers to childcare, create barriers to healthcare sink them in housework and child rearing and financial insecurity to the point where they disengage with the outside world, lose any sort of independence and ability to think critically about how to vote. You are removing their status as a citizen. You are dehumanizing them, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, And sharing a personal story in an environment like that like the one that we are in right now is like opening the door, knowing you'll be attacked. It's like opening the door with your raw skin (laughs) and walking out into a blizzard with like wild coyotes looking for dinner. You have to be ready for that. You have to have your support system intact. And even, and even if you do, it's really rough. And, but you know, Dominique was right. She, you know, as usual. Yes. (laughs) You should always listen to black women. And I repeat her line all the time. Don't be afraid to share your story. How else are your people going to find you? 100%. 100%. I want my people to find me, you know? I mean, I can tell you do too. I want my people to know me. It feels like a form of rebellion. Letting people (laughs) actually know you feels like a revolutionary idea to me. As a white woman, like really know you. Not just like the outer layer of you that you want them to know. We like we should always listen to black women because I do think there's a certain kind of silence that's so prevalent in the white community, um, and it's used as you know a tool of oppression. And that's probably a whole other episode. But I will say, yes, like, it is. <laughs> it is 
it's it, for me, it's been super interesting to see how dumb these words um, like came to life and, 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 and have, have served me. Um, I know that I can be really intense about my convictions, this, especially this topic. So I have been really working on meeting people where they are and trying to accept people for what they bring to the table. But it's definitely a struggle because silence is triggering for me as someone who has felt silenced for so long, Mm. Um, even just as a means of like survival, like even as it's, as it's protected me and carried me and kept me safe and, and held me, it's still, it's still triggering. So, um, when I see when I see people in positions where it seems like they they don't have to be silent, but they are. Like for example, when I was fundraising, and I noticed that you know my cis straight white male friends were not showing up, I you know I did a little light roasting. I kind of made it into <laughs> a fun, and I liked and I and it helped and it kind of helped. Like it made it kind of fun. Honestly, it turned it, it turned it into a little detective game. I did some roasting. I didn't call it out, you know, individual people, but I did some roasting in general and it (laughs) fired people up and it made it, and it made it fun. And, you know, I'm not going to get it right all the time. I know that I'm, I, I've, I've said some dumb things too, and I probably hurt some feelings, but I am going to show up for others. Hmm. Even as I have been talking my body, um, like physically, I can feel my voice getting like a little bit louder. I can feel, I can feel myself settling in a little bit more into, mm. into the space. Um, <clears throat> you know, you have to fight part of that, like, li- like physically, I'm trying to like explain how it's physically hard to talk about. Um, but yes. I'm going to talk about it because I know that there are so many others who cannot mostly colored women. Yes. And they're not getting the support that they need. Um, and, and, you know, so there will be people in my life that, that slowly, quietly walk backwards because they can't be, they can't show up in the way that I want them to. But there have also been, I will tell you, Jen, like there have been people who have come out of the wood, woodwork in my life, like people from different phases of my life who have shown up in unexpected ways since I started speaking out, like just small Mm -hmm. things, like sharing like Instagram posts about like my experience, Uh, like acquaintances, like old coworkers, people who just kind of get it or they don't, or they don't even get it. And, but, but they have, they're in a place in their lives where they can kind of empathize with others, um, which, you know, isn't true for everyone. Some people need to catch up, but, and some people won't do the work necessary to catch up. But, um, you know, those, some of those people have like come, you know, surrounded me and held me. And, and I like, it's been super surprising and really incredible. I love um, that. I love that. I can relate so much to that. Yeah. Wow. I mean, it's just, uh, yeah. So, uh, so thank so thank you for giving me this space to be able to talk about it because in all honesty, I feel lighter. I feel, Good. um, I feel like my throat's starting to open up again. I feel like I can laugh and smile about it. Like, and it's, you know, it's a hard, it's a hard conversation to have, but at the same time, it's so necessary for those of us who can, for those of us who have done the work to have, have, you know, 
seek the, the therapy and, the, and, and have the support system, it's important for those of us who can to do the work um, to, to, to tell our stories. Oh my gosh, this is, well, Abby, I mean, I'm, I'm sitting here as you're talking, just shaking my head. Yes, yes, yes. Everything you have said today has hit so many levels of emotions for me and so many chords. And I think it will, for so many listeners as well, um, just your vulnerability to tell your story and be authentic is so powerful. Um, and like you said, I mean, you can feel your body becoming lighter as you tell your truth and you tell your story. And that is your nervous system, like literally mm-hmm. releasing the trauma that you've been holding on to. And, you know, we share that we're both have gone through therapy. We've gone through trauma. Um, you know, I actually have entered into a new phase of, of my therapy called DBT therapy, where I'm very focused right now on when my nervous system feels has a feeling that something is off. And I used to just ignore that, push it down until it literally became a panic attack because it, mm-hmm. you know, it couldn't, the trauma and the anger or the fear couldn't go anywhere. So it just forces itself out of you when you ignore it for so long. Um, and so, you know, I, I love that you feel safe right now and that you're feeling better and telling your story and that storytelling, you know, looking back on movements of our time is such a critical component towards change. Um, and, you know, coming from community organizing circles and being trained in different institutes on, on community organizing, telling your story, your story of self is the number one step one takes to become an agent for change. Um, and, and those stories start to ring true to other people. And it's just a ping pong effect that then you recognize we've all suffered some sort of injustice. Mm-hmm. And, and what does that mean? What, what world are we living in? And how can we change that if we're all experiencing it? Mm-hmm. Um, and so thank you. Thank you for sharing your story. I am you know, just blown away by your commitment um, and how much self-reflection you've done to get to where you are today. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's it does feel like a a, a victory, um, a big victory. I was going to say a small victory. It does, no, it feels like a big victory because I think, like you just said, like unleashing unleashing your voice is what it's it's the first step that you need to take in order to start um, acting as an agent for change. Absolutely. So, and I'm ready for that. Like I, I, now I'm trying to figure out like, Hey, what are the next steps? Like, how can I, how can I change other people's lives? So that's, that's really cool to hear. That's, and it's, isn't that great? It's, it's I don't want to say the word addicting, but it is when you it's start fueling, it's fueling, right? Yes. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And I, I'm sitting here taking notes on all of the things you talked about today. Um, and I mean, we're almost at time and I feel like we could have so many episodes on some of the issues you raised. Like, just the sexual the sexual assault issue, you know, violence against women, teenage pregnancy, um, these these issues that have been sort of brushed under the rug, under the table for centuries. You know, the, our generation, our ancestors, women have gone through this for centuries, and we haven't talked about it. Back to the patriarchy, back to misogyny, back to being silenced. Um, it, it, you know, I love that we are now saying, no, we're not, we aren't, we aren't going to sit silently. We mm-hmm. are going to listen to our black sisters and we are going to listen to them for advice. And they're going to be at the cornerstone of 
of our movement. And they're going to be the cornerstone of the mentors I bring into my life. Like just Mm -hmm. changing that mentality to more inclusivity, but also just, you know, having the ability to share a story on a platform like, like a podcast and inspire Mm -hmm. thousands. And so when we, when we open up society, when become more transparent, those crannies and dark corners of, of hate or of, of shame or violence can no longer be hidden. And, you know, you're right. The haters are, can come out. And I am very familiar with the tactic of a smear campaign. You know, Mm -hmm. she's crazy. This is what she does. You know, all of those things, like what, what tell the truth? Like I'm crazy, tell the truth. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's what we're starting to own now. And I, I love that, that we can start dismantling these falsehoods. Mm-hmm. Don't be afraid of your, don't like, I think they want us to fear and silence our rage. That's, <laughs> and, and anger is a, is when used properly is a really valuable tool. <laughs> like, Absolutely. Don't be afraid to, to get angry. Don't be afraid. Like that's, they call us crazy because they, they want us to be afraid to, they don't want us to get angry publicly. They don't want us to show our, our rage. Absolutely. And that's, I, I was actually talking to one of my friends about, you know, and I think it was actually on a podcast. I was talking about um, being a white woman and the, that I feel like I'm trying to constantly dismantle this concept of white, putting white women on a pedestal and that we have to be, have this perfect image, like literally the Virgin Mary and how, and whatever, she wasn't even white, but that's besides the point. <laughs> You know, we, we, we had to put ourselves on there. We've been put on this pedestal and God forbid you try to dismantle it as a white woman, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's our role to dismantle that. And when we dismantle that, when we together, we continue to open up doors for lots of races because we're finally saying, no, we're not doing this anymore. We're not giving in to the white privileged male perspective of how women should be. It's not happening. Um, and that's our role to help open doors for equality for other genders, other races, and other, frankly, frankly economic levels so that we can all talk together. Um, and I'm, I'm all about it. I'm, I'm ready to fight with you, Abby. <laughs> and, and I have to like say one, uh, one more nod to my English studies because I am, you know, obsessed with reading and writing. Love it. Um, you know, fiction and is a powerful place to go to for that. Um, it, it, you know, I just read Animal by Lisa Tadeo, and she unleashes, unleashes some major female rage. And um, it's, it, it's just interesting to use, to, to look at fiction and look at art and look at the ways that women are showing up in those spaces um, to give us permission and to show us something about ourselves. Um, so it's just like another nod to, 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 you don't, you can find your story through, um, different mediums and, um, you can tell your story through different mediums too. So just wanted to add that. (laughs) Thank you. I'm going to, I'm going to check out this book. It sounds awesome. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, the reason I even thought of it is because it reminded me of this other, it reminded me of a nonfiction book called Rage Becomes Her by, um, okay. Sarai, I think it's, uh, Shemily. Yes. 
Yes. I haven't yeah, read that. She talks about middle-class white girls and how like we suppress negative uh, feelings and we can't be openly angry and it just, uh, it, it's all intertwined. So <clears throat> it's, it's interesting stuff. <laughs> we, that could be a whole nother episode, girl. <laughs> yes, it can. I'm like Amazoning both of these books right now. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh, Abby. It's fiction and, and nonfiction that, you know, that uh, helped me tell my story. So that's why I even bring it up. And, but yeah, anyways. I love it. I love <laughs> it. There are so many ways. I mean, you, I mean, when you're on a healing journey, you are, I mean, for me, I'm, I, I'm kind of, I've had a similar experience to you. You know, I almost, I took about a year off during the pandemic. Um, and that was really hard financially and mentally. And I was going through a divorce and separation and I felt extremely isolated. And in many ways, looking back on it as I continue to move mm-hmm. forward in my healing and in my own self-empowerment and being a single mom and being okay with that, like, you know, in many ways, the pandemic was a blessing. And because given how I always am running 150 miles an hour, it was like the world or God, whatever you believe in saying, you're going to have to stop now and you're going to have to face your demons. And I'm with you on that. I I went through so much heartache and self-isolation and broke off friendships that I had since childhood. You know, I had to put distance from my family members Mm -hmm. because I had to eliminate the chatter and I had to eliminate my, the childhood expectations that were on me to heal from, from trauma, the divorce, um, very, uh, unhealthy relationships, you know, just trying to like, why, why do I have this pattern? And unfortunately, sometimes when you, to figure that out, you have to isolate yourself. And I was able to bring new individuals into my life slowly. Cause as I let these old relationships and these old ideas of myself go, I suddenly had new space for new people and new friendships and new relationships. And it's just what you said. I I'm, I'm slowly starting to find my people because yeah. for the first time in my life, I'm starting to be authentic. Oh my gosh, I'm, and I'm going through that too. Yep. <laughs> yep. It can be really isolating, but then it's like once you meet someone that like you, like I met you, I'm like, oh my God, this woman is incredible. Where has she been my whole life, you know? <laughs> Thank you, Domini. <laughs> I know, Domini. <laughs> She's the cornerstone. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, well, Abby, I, I want to, you know, You've taken so much of your time. I want to say once again, thank you so much for sharing your story. I am so proud of you. I'm so happy for you and how how far you have, I don't want to say how far you've come, but yeah. how deep you've gone. And it sounds like you have a beautiful life out there in, in California right now. And just know you always have a place here in Indiana um, and definitely rooting for you. And if anyone ever needs to take a camping trip to California, <laughs> I'm here. I'd love to bring my daughter. Well, we're there. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Jen. Thanks so much. Okay, Abby, have a wonderful afternoon and thank you so much. You too. Bye. Our next story is from a woman named Jessie. Jessie is from Indiana and currently lives here. She works for the state of Indiana and is also a community advocate. There is a trigger warning for this interview. We do talk about tough topics like suicide and intimate partner violence, Um, but she is a wonderful woman. I am honored to get to know her and work with her. Um, So let's listen to Jessie with an open heart. 
Good afternoon, everyone. Um, and thank you for following the stories and the series thus far on abortion rights and the aftermath of the Roe v. Wade decision that was made by the Supreme Court. Um, it's been such an honor and a journey over the past week um, to get stories from a rally that took place in Indianapolis, Indiana, in front of the State House on Monday, July 25th as the state legislator is hearing a bill to ban abortions in the state of Indiana. Uh, currently, state legislators are introducing amendments to that bill, um, and they are still debating the content of that bill um, on the Senate floor. Um, with everything going on, we've had such remarkable response from Hoosier women across the state of Indiana, um, and frankly, also women across the country. Uh, who have stood up and shared their stories and their personal stories about why they decided to have an abortion at some point in their life and why that decision was critical for their thriving lives now um, and their own happiness. And so we've, we've heard a few glimpses of that um, over the course of a couple episodes that I've been doing in this series. Um, but today, we are honored to have our next guest, Jesse. Uh, she um, reached out to me through some mutual friends and is willing uh, and wants to share her story about getting an abortion and why that decision was so critical for her uh, today and for her at the time. And now she is um, a thriving uh, woman, a thriving citizen and a contributor to the Hoosier economy. Um, and so I'd, I'd love to uh, bring Jessie on and allow her to tell her story. So Jessie, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, if you want to just talk a little bit about, you know, what you do now and, you know, I want you to know that this space today and this conversation is your space. Um, and this is your moment to tell your story um, to the larger, you know, quilt of stories that are being shared across the country right now about this issue. Um, and we know that when you look at social movements from the past, successful social movements really started um, on powerful stories of individuals who, who had a moment in their lives or witnessed a moment in their life of injustice. Um, and so you know, we just, I just want to make sure that, you know, you have a safe space to tell your story and share that with others. So maybe you inspire them to come forward and tell their stories. And also, um, your story will hopefully be heard by legislators making a decision, um, for generations in the future around the issue of abortion. Um, so I hope that you feel comfortable just sharing with us, you know, your experience, um, with reproductive health and, and how your choice to have an abortion, um, has defined you and helped you today. So just feel free to share whatever you'd like. Sure. Um, so I currently work for the state of Indiana. Um, I also have a part-time job and two community volunteer roles. Um, actually, three community volunteer roles. I just picked up another one in uh, March. And um, I also just graduated from grad school from IUPUI. So that was a really big accomplishment for me. <clears throat> Congratulations. That's incredible. Thank you. Thank you. So I grew up um, with a young single mother. Uh, she 
unfortunately suffered from alcoholism, uh, still suffers from alcoholism, which is really hard for uh, um, any kind of child who's growing up with an alcoholic. Um, I also, you know, I had a a father who was around sometimes, but not very often. Um, He, you know, also was an alcoholic, unfortunately, and, you know, even could be abusive when he was drinking, um, which scarred me and probably left me with a lot of trauma, um, that I still am working through as an adult. Um, and, you know, I'd lo- not to say I love my parents dearly. And I, I think, you know, especially my mom, she did everything she could. Uh, she had a rough childhood. And so, you know, that cycle of trauma, um, that cycle of trauma kind of continues because um, she never kind of got over her trauma. And, um, and my, you know, my dad dropped out of high school as a sophomore. So I felt um, after I graduated high school, I, uh, I got accepted to college. I was going to be a first-generation college student, which was huge. Uh, none of my sib- um, I was my mom's only child, but my dad had other children with other women. Um, and my half-brothers never had gone to college. Uh, so this was a really exciting moment for me. Going into college, I had a boyfriend. Um, that I had been dating starting when I was about 17. Um, and that relationship was really toxic and unhealthy. And um, looking back, I would hate to, you know, blame it all on him because, <laughs> you know, at the time that's probably how I felt. But, you know, I had so much trauma in my life that I hadn't worked through. And so I don't want to point all the fingers at him for the toxic relationship. But, um, you know, it's worth noting. (laughs) It's a big point of noting that starting really early on in my life, I, I suffered from, I'm guessing, I mean, it's un, was never diagnosed, but, uh, I would think severe depression, um, I, I didn't necessarily know it wasn't normal to fantasize about suicide or dying as an elementary child, an elementary school child. But um, now as an adult, I look and think, oh, gosh, that's definitely not normal. Um, there was something wrong there. I, I remember, I guess, far back as I can remember elementary school, just um, thinking that, I wanted to die and that, you know, I would be better off and that, you know, nobody would really care. And, um, so I lived my life like that for several, several years until well into adulthood. Uh, I struggled with suicidal thoughts. Um, when I became a teenager, you know, that turned into a little bit more than just thoughts. I, I started, um, self-harming myself um and you know not not many people know that but when I do share this story I think it's like a very important aspect because it kind of tells you where my mental headspace was um so 
you know, when I am about 16 years old, I start using sharp objects to cut my wrists. Um, and you know, my parents to this day, still don't know about it. You know, it's not something I'm proud of, but it's also something that I think is important to tell. So people who do feel that way, don't feel alone and, um, they should get the help that they deserve. (laughs) I should, I wish I would have. Um, so let's, uh, let's talk about the start of this relationship with this guy I was dating that it was toxic. Um, I adored him. (laughs) He went to a different high school than me. Um, and so I was at a, this is a, there were two defining, um, nights I would say in our relationship you know, not, there's probably a lot more than two, but these two really haven't, like, they stick out to me. Um, to just kind of give a little context to how toxic of a relationship this was and, and how unhealthy I was in this relationship. So, um, and, and I think also it's worth noting that at the very beginning of us dating, it wasn't, you know, oh, we're boyfriend or girlfriend. It was kind of a on and off thing or, you know, it wasn't a real official official, I guess. I don't know. So, um, he was, he had gone to college. He was a year older than me and I was at a party and one of his friends was there. One of his really good friends, um, who I was friends with too. He was one of my friends. Um, I was 17 when I was 17, my friends and all and I all drank too much at parties and um, did things we shouldn't have been doing. And um, I woke up that morning and I was so hungover. I, you know, had drank way too much and I blacked, I passed out, I passed out. And um, two friends of mine had told me that they walked into a room and um, the guy I was on and off dating's friend was having sex with me when I was passed out laying next to my own vomit. Um, And, you know, yelled at him And then I remember them telling me that the next day I had no idea. And I immediately texted the guy and was like, you know, in distress. And his response was to call me a slut and not believe anything I had to say. Um, And I dated him for years past this and he never acknowledged you know, what his friend did. Um, and you know, I was forced to still be around him years later, which is another, like, you know, that's traumatizing as well. And it was just bizarre because, you know, he was my friend or I thought he was my friend and, um, it was all very confusing. And so, um, I felt very, I mean, how does somebody feel after that? I felt really dirty and like 
uh, emotional and my suicidal thoughts, you know, you know, were even worse. And I, you know, what was self mutilating worse. And especially the guy that you really love is telling you, you're a, you know, you're a slut and that all this stuff and doesn't believe you. And, um, that was very hard to deal with both his response and then my own like processing of what had happened. Um, and (laughs) interestingly, I talked to other girls that went to their high school that I was friends with. And I wasn't the first girl he had done this to, not even the second. So, I mean, not that that was like um, comforting, but it made me feel a little bit less like crazy. Like I, you know, like, so um, I, you know, fast forward, I want to say, six months, maybe I, I can't remember. I was 17 this long time ago, but I want to say six months. And, um, this guy that I was dating was home from college. Uh, and you know, we must've worked through it and, um, he still didn't, you know, believe me or whatever, but you know, we moved on or at least, you know, I didn't move on from the trauma of it, but moved on in our relationship. And this is a strange story the way this went down, but we were at a party with his high school friends. And um, I see his friend who, you know, had sex with me when I wasn't awake. (laughs) And I immediately wanted to leave the party um, as you could imagine. I felt sick to my stomach. I didn't want to see him. I didn't want to be around him. Uh, and so other people were wanting to leave the party. I'm not sure where we were going. Um, so there were six, one, two, three, at least six, there might've been seven of us who crammed into a cab, not counting the cab driver. (laughs) So there were two people in the front seat. Um, (laughs) And I was in the back seat, right behind the front seat, sitting on someone's lap. Um, my boyfriend was in the front seat, and he was either sitting on someone's lap or someone was sitting on his lap. The person in the front seat with him was, you know, if we were 17, he was, you know, five years older than us, which kind of is weird when you think about, oh, a 22-year-old hanging out with 17-year-olds is a little bizarre, but... I didn't think that at the time. Um, and the ca- cab driver was really good friends with this 22-year-old. He used him for all his cab rides. So they have a really good relationship. Um, and so, like I said, they were all his high school friends. And so I get in the car. I've had a little bit to drink. And I'm maybe running my mouth like, oh, God, I, I can't stand so-and-so that was at the party because – he, you know, I can't stand him. I just remember repeating that like, Oh, like can't believe I had to be around him. And the guy in the front was like, don't talk about my friends like that. And I was like, well, I, I can say whatever I want. And a little pretext, this guy 
was probably, he's over six foot. He's huge. Um, he had gone to jail for a battery and assault several times. Um, it was a rumor. I don't know this, that he was on steroids. Like he looked like he was. And, and it was, a that, that was told to me after this event that he often maybe had like roid rage incidents, but it was like a known thing that he would beat up people who were half his size. So there's a little context about him. So I start saying, um, I can say whatever I want about him. And he, from the front seat, elbows me in the face, which felt like as hard as he could. And bursted all the blood vessels in my eye and I got a, a black eye and instinctually I reach up to just grab at who, you know, whoever did that. And, um, he responds by you know, getting a hold of my neck and slamming my head against the window several times. Um, and he was squeezing my neck so hard I had actual strangulation marks around my neck. And there were uh, cuts from nails going in where his thumbs were around my neck. Um, and it, it was bizarre. And I it sounds like a made-up story, but it it absolutely happened. And I, um, the cab driver literally dropped me off on the side of a, I mean, it was at a, uh, at a gas station on the side of a highway in the pouring rain. Um, and my boyfriend got out with me, but of course, um, keeping in line with the theme, this was all my fault. And, you know, I should have just keep kept my mouth shut and, um, that's not really like what you want to hear after being assaulted, you know, by your boyfriend's friend again. Um, so we get a ride and I am like hysterical. And so he's getting, my boyfriend's getting mad at me for being hysterical and like drops me off at my friend's house. One of my friends from my high school. So I feel like I'm going to a safer place. Um, and as soon as I walk in, you know, it's a few of my friends, um, uh, instantly my first friend who sees me starts crying because, um, it's just a vivid rem- memory I have because of just the way I looked from having a black, a black and bloody eye and having like strangulation and, and blood actually coming from my neck. And all my friends started taking pictures of me and, and saying, you need to call the police. And, um, I mean, gosh, I was like, call the police. Like I, I was drink, you know, I had had a couple drinks like this is what, you know, thinking I'm going to get in trouble for this. And, um, and I, you know, they really sat me down and, and they were like, no, he can't, he shouldn't get away with this. Like, and so, um, I think about it and that's like scary thought to like go to the police. I'm thinking about it and I go to school on Monday and my, I, I believe it was my sociology teacher comes up to me and he whispers to me, he says, whoever did this to you, don't let them get away with it. And 
that, um, I'll never forget that. And then the next period, my counselor called me down. He must have called my counselor. Um, and at this time, I'm already texting my boyfriend to say, like, all these people want me to, like, go to the cops. And he, his response was, if you do, because, you know, it's just one of his friends. If you do, I'll break up with you. And, um, and so I lied to my counselor and I said, you know, I think she was concerned it was my parents or something, but I said, instead of, I said, yeah, I couldn't really deny I got into some kind of altercation. So I said, I, you know, I got into an altercation with a girl. I didn't say, you know, somebody twice my size and like, wait, like older than me. (laughs) Um, I lied because, uh, I didn't want him to break up with me. <laughs> and so that's a little pretend pre uh, context, I guess is where we're a little context of my story with him. And like, those are maybe some of the more egregious ones, but of, over the course of four years, you can imagine that um, there's been a lot other stories, a lot of other trauma. And, um, and so here I am. I'm, I'm 20 years old. I'm a first-generation college student. And let me tell you, I'm a dreamer. <laughs> I have a lot of big dreams for myself. Um, and, and, and not necessarily all for myself, but about how my helping the world. I really, you know, everybody might say that, but I really do care about um, leaving the world a, a better place or at least trying um, that is, you know, motivates my mission in life. It's like, you know, public service, caring about animals, caring about the environment, all very important things to me. I mean, I work, you know, for the state, uh, like a government employee. Um, so that, that those values have always been instilled in me. Um, so I had big dreams and, at 20, um, you know, we, we were not, I I may have been 21. I I can't, I think I was 21. Maybe I just turned 21 or I was like about to. And we, he had broken up with me, uh, prior to, and had a new girlfriend like two weeks later, which is another huge source of trauma after dating for like three years. So, um, that was really traumatic. And then of course, when that girl and him, they ended up breaking up and I went back to him because I always loved him very dearly. Um, even if it was toxic, I just adored him. Um, and, uh, he didn't want to date me. He just wanted to like sleep with me, which I'm sure a lot of people can resonate with. But, you know, I was like, not to sound pathetic, but I was like, I'll take what I can get. Like maybe he'll want something more like later. You know, I was always like the hope in the back of my mind. Um, And so we started, you know, having like, some more, like we had sex sometimes, you know, we hung out 
you know, quote his terminology as we were just friends. So, um, and I, through this whole cycle, was still um, dealing with suicidal thoughts um, and self-mutilation. And I think it's important to clarify the distinction for me personally um, between self-mutilation and then an actual suicide attempt because um, when I was, when I was hurting myself, I wanted to die, but I wasn't trying to kill myself. If that makes sense. Um, I hadn't committed to doing it. I just thought, I don't know. It was just, it's a bizarre thing that a therapist could probably explain better than I could. But, um, so there was a time in our relationship when I had decided I had committed to, um, I was going to kill myself. It was, uh, and I, and I did try one time. Um, and it was scary, sad. Um, and it didn't, it didn't, those feelings didn't stop. Um, and so, at, at that 21 or 20, I got pregnant with this guy that I had been in such a toxic, abusive relationship with, and I'm struggling with suicidal thoughts. And um, like I said, like I had dreams for myself, and it was not to end up um, a college dropout and a young single mom, like my mom was. And my childhood was so, uh, it was traumatizing. Um, and I would never, ever want to do that to a, a child or be myself. I knew there was no way I was ready to have a child, but there's no way I would ever give a child up. And it's not even have a child. There's no way I was ready to be pregnant. <laughs> um, that, whole process still to this day is just it scares me I don't think my school ever taught me very comprehensive sex education so um childbirth and all that just really freaks me out like um a lot <laughs> so um I decided that the best thing for me would be to have an abortion. Um, the best thing for anybody in this situation would be for me to have an abortion. I, if I was, if I was forced into it today, like they're about to, uh, Indiana legislature, you know, they're about to force women against their will to remain pregnant and give birth. I don't think um, if I didn't have the means to travel to another state, I can't be so sure that I wouldn't have killed myself. And that's like a, it's a hard thing for me to say out loud. Um, and so it almost, I mean, it's just wild to think that 
people are not going to have that option. There's so many women who suffer from mental health issues and other issues or just have dreams for their, their selves. Um, and, and so I think that having an abortion was a, the life changing for me as in maybe life saving for me. I think it's, it saved my life. It made my life better. Um, not only did I go on to graduate, uh, from college as a first generation college student. Um, but I also went on later to graduate with a master's degree. So a first generation, um, grad school, uh, college student as well. So I, you know, and I, I'm involved in a lot of advocacy and, being able to terminate that pregnancy was the one of the best things I've ever been able to do for myself and my future. Um, and I can't imagine somebody taking that away from me. Uh, it feels dehumanizing. It makes me feel like I don't matter. Um, it really hurts to be honest. It's, it's a pain. It's painful to, um, it's painful to know that there are people out there who really don't care about my well-being as much as um, a fetus. And I just have to say that I'm not a, you know, I grew up Catholic and I never really, I tried really hard to buy into it. I really did. I went to Sunday school. I did everything. I tortured myself for years for not fully believing in what I was trying to believe in. Um, and I felt guilty for years, which I think is what they want you to do. But, you know, I, now I today can say that, um, I don't think I'm a bad person because I'm not religious. I think it's okay for everybody to follow their own religious beliefs. I think that's wonderful. I think the first amendment guarantees us all that. Right. And, Um, So I consider myself as agnostic, you know, so to me, and some people might think this is crass, but you know, that I don't, but to me, um, there's nothing special about somebody getting pregnant unless they want to be pregnant. So pregnancy is the result of a biological event, sperm meets egg, you know, so that's not inherently special to me. So if, um, if a woman doesn't want to be pregnant, I think that she has every right to terminate that pregnancy. Um, if a woman wants to keep her baby that she has every right to do that. Um, I don't think it's the government's position to say, uh, what women need to do with their bodies. So, I mean, I've seen some good examples like, um, we can't for the government can't force a woman or a man or whoever to give up their, say their kidney, if they're a perfect match with somebody else, because they recognize that we all have bod- bodily autonomy. Um, I don't see the difference in why do I have to sacrifice my, you know, my uterus, my, you know, my entire body essentially, um, for 
something, something that's not me. Like you're like the government's asking us to sacrifice our bodies and that doesn't fall in line with any other kind of laws we have about bodily autonomy, about, you know, we aren't forced to give blood or plasma or kidneys or organs. Uh, just, it seems like such an overreach to force women to, um, stay pregnant against their will. So I guess that's, uh, basically my story and how, um, I think for me, abortion was life saving. I think it saved my life and under the proposed legislation so far, you know, I wouldn't be an exception. I would be forced. And like I said, I don't know if I'd still be here. So. Wow. Well, Jesse, I, number one, just thank you for sharing that story and just being so honest and authentic with who you are, your background, and the challenges you faced as a girl um, and how that contributed to, you know, relationships that you were in. But I think what is so beautiful about your story and, you know, I use the word resilience and I know that word can be overused, but there was something in you that kept fighting. There was, there was, there was enough of your self-understanding that you were worth more than what you were experiencing. And you were able to overcome so many barriers that things that people, people, whether it was people, whether it was relationships, whether it was family dynamics, you know, being a first generation child to go to college, you, you overcame so many barriers to be where you are today. And you should be so proud. And I'm, I'm frankly honored and uh, to be talking to you right now and met you. Um, and I'm so proud of you without sounding so cheesy. I'm so proud of you. And I'm sure anyone listening to this is proud of you. And I think your story is going to ring with so many women and everything you went through. If there's anything I've learned doing this podcast and, you know, going to therapy, going to group therapy, that you are not alone. And I think when, when we are in the depths of sorrow and, you know, believe me, I've had my moments of suicidal thoughts in my life where I just felt alone. Um, and why should I be here? No one will understand and hurting after going through so much trauma in my childhood and throughout life. But the reality is, I think the beauty of life is that we we come to learn when we become our authentic selves, when we, as our last guest said, when you finally find your people, because you start telling your story, you find your people who went through the same experience as you and you learn you weren't alone. And that many of us, myself included, um, have gone through abusive relationships and have had to make that choice to keep a child or not that frankly was life-saving. Knowing if you were in an abusive, intimate partner relationship and you would have kept that baby, that would have kept you tied to that abusive individual the rest of your life. And whether you took your own life or, or he did, um, we will never know because you had that option to say no, to take your life back. And you have done the work. You've done the work, which is you've gone to therapy. You are working to, to face your trauma. You are trying to end generational trauma. You are trying to end 
um, self-harm and you're finding your self-worth through education, through community activism, through getting involved. I mean, that's exactly... I think you couldn't ask for a better outcome. And I know that we're not perfect. We have to keep working on ourselves when we go through this trauma. But the fact that you're now this resilient... And I know the, the things you're involved in, you're such a cornerstone in many communities... Um, whether it's political activism or your work with the state, and we need you here. Um, and, and you know, abortion was just one piece to keeping you here. And, and, I, and I just thank you. I think your story is beautiful. And keep going and keep fighting because I am right beside you. Thank you so much. And I, I did want to add one thing on is that um, I, I should have mentioned this, but I do feel like I've gotten the support and the help I've needed in my later, um, my more adult life. And so I, I don't struggle. Um, I don't struggle with those thoughts as often or not even close to what I used to. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will say that when the actual decision came out and it was overturned, Roe v. Wade, um, I had a, a strong reaction to that. And um, I think I'm sure a lot of women did. So um, I just wanted to say that therapy works. <laughs> get get the help that you deserve for anybody who's listening to this and resonates with uh, suicidal thoughts. Absolutely. Absolutely. The help is out there. And this is where I want to insert the hotline for suicide. I forget what isn't there a national hotline now? Yep. Is it is it four one? What is the? Do you know what the hotline is? I'll find it and insert it. I'll tell John to put it in. Okay. Um, but there is there is help out there, and there are resources out there. And you know, I I always tell anyone also who tells their story when it comes to um, intimate partner abuse that you, that that I believe you, I believe you. I will never question any ounce of it. I believe you. And we believe you. There's a community out there of women who and activists who will believe believe you and listen to you without judgment. And I think that is so important for women who are healing um, and who are who are finding resources to get better. Um, you're believed and we need you here. So Thank you so much, Jesse. Like we're going to continue this fight together. I am honored to have met you. And it goes back to, you know, sharing in one of my interviews earlier that, you know, I went through a lot of self-processing over the course of three years, especially in COVID, being isolated and really being forced with your trauma. Um, And what I realized is when I started letting go of the past slowly, and I'm still trying to let go of it, it, I was able to, again, bring in room for new, healthy relationships and people who understand me, understand my struggle, understand resilience, understand trauma. And in order for me to finally give space to those new people and those new relationships, and I think authentic relationships, I have to let go of the past. And I think that is such a journey. And I really, I look up to you and everything you've accomplished um, and just, I hope that we can continue being friends and, and fight together. Of course. And I feel the same about you. I'm, I'm super inspired and so glad our paths crossed and they will continue to cross and mingle because you're awesome. <laughs> same girl, same. <laughs> and, well, thank you so much, Jesse. We'll talk to you later. 
Okay, sounds good. Thank you. So thank you for listening to both Abby and Jesse's stories today. Um, Both women, I can say, are just beautiful humans. Um, I'm just super fortunate to have both of them recently come into my life. Um, And both of them, we've promised each other that we're going to support each other um, in all of our endeavors moving forward. Um, That the the phone, the email, the social media lines are always open to each other, um, to talk to each other, to support each other, to gut check each other, and really build community with each other around this critical issue around abortion and reproductive rights, but also just as thriving women, thriving modern women who've been through trauma, who've made tough decisions in their lives um, so that they can live the healthiest life they know how today. Um, and, and I really stand by Abby and Jesse. Um, I stand by them and the hard work that they're doing. Um, they're doing the work. They're, they're going to therapy to this day. They've gone through lots of therapy and, and sought out support in their communities. Um, and in some cases, didn't have the family to rely on, um, but looked elsewhere to find that support. You know, whether that was through higher education, um, getting their master's degrees um, in healthy relationships today, um, and seeking out opportunities um, to better themselves and and fight for stronger communities. So they are two of the most wonderful women that I've met recently. And I'm, again, so lucky to have them in my life. And, you know, another thing that we have in common that I haven't shared yet until till now um, is that I've had an abortion. And the decision around that was extremely heart-wrenching. And you know, the details surrounding the decision was heart-wrenching. And I know that today as a mother, as a healthy mother of my beautiful daughter, um, as a thriving single parent, and as a woman on a journey to process her childhood trauma, as I've, I've shared, to process other traumas that have happened in my life and in relationships... Um, to live a more authentic life, to live a more honest life, I know that the decision I made was the absolute best decision. And I have conversations with God about that decision. And I thank God every day that I had the opportunity through science to make a choice for my health and for my mental health. And I have no shame. I have worked through all my shame. I have worked through all my guilt. Is there triggering moments? Yes. Do I feel like I have PTSD surrounding my decision to get an abortion? Absolutely not. I have come to the the, the conclusion as an adult, as a mother, um, as a thriving woman in society that is a contributor to our economy, that the decision to have an abortion was simply a medical procedure. And I had the privilege and the right to use that medical procedure to go get a small outpatient surgery to prevent a lot of heartache, 
a lot of sadness. And frankly, I, I actually, I, I can't predict what would have happened had I, had I decided to keep the baby. Um, and so I share that with you today because if I'm going to ask my interviewees and my listeners to come forward with their most authentic selves, I think it's my responsibility to do that. Um, and I also want to let folks know that the door is always open. If you want to send me an email, send me a message and share your story, you always can and we will confidentially hold it. And, you know, I'm going to walk out of my office today and out of this session with my head held high and proud of all the accomplishments I have made as a woman, as a mother, as a business owner, and as a thriving citizen, confidently walk out and know that I made the right decision. So on that note, thank you for listening. Thank you for coming to the table with an open heart and an open mind. Um, I can't thank my listeners enough for just your support and your kind notes. Um, and, you know, again, just to open up the door, if there's any other issue you want us to take on, let me know, DM me, send me a note, email me. Um, Watts of Change podcast is about talking about hard topics for change. And it's about getting different sides of the issue and walking forward with our most authentic selves working through ourselves to create change so that we can become the best social agents we can be. Thank you so much. 